You're listening to Seattle Real Estate Podcast. Today, we're talking about the unintended consequences of the rent controls and eviction moratoriums. We're coming to the end of June. That's when all the eviction moratoriums are supposed to be lifted. But as we kind of knew, and as we predicted, until the federal money starts pumping through the system and people's rent gets caught up, landlords get paid off for the back rent that they're owed, we're just going to have these eviction moratoriums extended out until who knows when. It looks like a lot of them are going to September. Sounds about right, because we've got, all right, we're at the end of June. We're going, um, so we got July, August, end of September, you got another 90 days. If the government can't get some money through the system in 90 days, who knows? But that's what we're talking about. And one of the things that I keep bringing up is that as you put more and more restrictions, as you extend out this moratorium further and further, you've got more and more what what are termed mom and pop investors, owners of rental housing saying, I don't want to do this anymore. I've got enough equity. I'm out. That is what I am seeing as a residential real estate broker, owner of a real estate appraisal company and a real estate brokerage. That's what I am seeing on my end is I've got a lot of people that are either they're looking to sell, they are selling, have sold, they're taking their proceeds and they're buying their retirement home wherever. But they're not buying another rental property because they're like, I don't want to go through this again. Government's basically telling me, I can't use this asset the way I want to, the way I want to. I can't collect rent in the way that I need to to make my payments. I am being forced to come up with some alternate plan that I shouldn't be having to be forced to just because the tenant can't pay. So, and we we all understand nobody wants to kick tenants to the curb, but this has been such a one sided deal. That this is, these are the unintended consequences. This is what I think a lot of the folks putting these laws into effect, extending out these moratoriums, they're not really understanding that this is, this is going to skyrocket rents. And rents are already here in Seattle, rents are already expensive, like the fourth most expensive in the United States. When you take supply out of an already limited supply of housing, rental housing, that is, there's only one way that rents are going to go, and that is through the roof further. So single family housing, I think I think you're going to see some insane rents and rent increases in the marketplace. Because guess what? We didn't have enough to begin with. Seattle's always had they always had low amounts of rental housing, specifically housing, single family homes, you know, your typical three bedroom, four bedroom, whatever bedroom type home, just not enough of them in our marketplace for the number of renters for the number of people want them. So that's what we're talking about today. And then I'm also going to read uh, a story from the perspective of an older couple that is looking at possible eviction and kind of how they're working through that. Because you don't always want to be on the one side of ah, these eviction moratoriums are crap, which I think they are. But and I think they could have been handled far differently. And I think they're just being kicked out, kicked out, you're just kicking the can down the road. And at some point in time, you're just going to have to go. And I understand we're waiting for federal money to hit the system. But who knows how long that's going to be. And in the meantime, the folks that I work with a lot, the folks that my companies work with a lot, are really under pressure to be taking all that weight from tenants who can't pay. And that that's unfair. So 
but we don't have a great solution. And our homelessness situation is already off the hook bad, right? I mean, just off the charts, horrible. I mean, during the coronavirus, that that situation has just exploded. And so as a result, we don't want to take a bunch of people behind on their rent and dump them on an already catastrophic situation. So we're trying to balance all of these things. That's why we're talking about it here. We're actually talking about real estate here on the Seattle Real Estate Podcast. If you're new, my name is Sean Reynolds. I own a couple of real estate companies. But more importantly, I read the news. The news that reasonable people want to hear. I haven't said that in a while because it's so ridiculous. It's like, uh, are you are you just calling yourself reasonable? I am. I mean, it's it's kind of a hook though, right? Hey, I'm a reasonable person. Everybody thinks they're reasonable, don't they? But only some of us are, right? I mean, reasonable people. All right, let's do this. Enough of the chit chat. State and local lawmakers are creating a problem that they do not or perhaps refuse to understand. And that is the erosion of the single family rental house supply. And I've been I've been watching this for 30 years. It's kind of crazy. You go through periods where people are buying rental properties, buying rental properties, and we've had that but we're in a position now where people are selling rental properties because they've created enough equity. They're like, I got a lot of money tied up in this bad boy, I should diversify. And they should, right? Because property values have have gone upward so hard. And if you're going to have the opportunity to diversify your portfolio, maybe you're getting closer to retirement as a lot of single family rental property owners are because those are the people that have enough money have lived long enough to create that equity that um, and they're they're looking at their asset going, why am I keeping this with all these restrictions coming down the pike? Why am I doing that? I'm not. And so my brokers real estate agents, they're getting hit up, I'm getting emails from people, hey, I know you got a real estate company, I got a rental property, I'm out of the country, I'm probably looking to sell because I can't deal with the stress of not knowing what's going to happen in the Seattle real estate market. And my income down the road depends on this money coming through. If I have a tenant to go sideways on me, I am really up the creek without a paddle. So many of those instances. And that's what we're kind of talking about here, right? In my more than 10 years of experience, we're back to the article now, in my more than 10 years of experience, never have I seen so many people searching for a new rental house, because the one they live in now is being sold. That I know that one. I know that one because a lot of the people that we've had as buyers also are they're struggling to figure out how do I get into a home? Because the one I just got sold, the one I was living in the one I was renting for a long time just got sold. So now I got to move, you know, what do I do? And I've had a ton of emails from people from listeners of the podcast saying, Hey, I'm going to retire in a couple of years. I got this much equity, I I don't really want to sell right now because I think property values are going to go up. I do too. Um, I think they're probably going to go up to like, 2025. And then we'll maybe take a reality check then and see where we're at. But um, I don't think I see things leveling off a little bit. And I think we're in a level off period kind of right now, which means instead of 10 offers on after a week, you've got maybe one, or you got somebody that's really interested, which is a little bit more normal. But things have definitely cooled down. You're just not hearing that in the major media yet because we don't have the st- statistics to kind of really back them up. Um, but yeah, 
tenants looking to buy as well, because their rental home is being sold and they're out of a house. The reality is not that the owners of these rental houses necessarily want to sell or take advantage of a hot seller's market. And it is a very hot seller's market. No, unfortunately, a sweeping trend among housing providers is that they are selling their rental houses due to policies handed down from state lawmakers and Seattle City Hall. Period. Let me read that one again. Uh, let's let's just throw me a bone here. Unfortunately, a sweeping trend among housing providers is that they are selling their rental houses due to policies handed down from state lawmakers and Seattle City Hall. I specifically recommend people to not buy a rental property in Seattle city limits. How crazy is that? I'm the host of the Seattle real estate podcast. And I literally tell people, well, you're going to have to deal with this, 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 and this. If you buy a property in, in Seattle, Seattle proper Seattle address, do you really want to deal with this? Or you can go to this city over here, arguably get more appreciation and not have to deal with all these regulations. What do you want to do? What's your choice? And people are like, God, I, didn't, I had no idea. I always thought Seattle was a great, great place to own a rental. It has been from the appreciation, but we've got so many regulations going on right now that are just like, uh, you can't evict people during, during the school year. If you're a teacher, you can't evict a teacher during the school year. Uh, I mean, just this, you know, you know, you can't do a 20 day eviction notice, you got to do 60. I mean, all of this crazy stuff. You know, we're going to do a 30 day eviction moratorium. Oh, now it's a year and 90 days. I mean, landlords have just been they've been kind of just brutalized throughout this process. And I understand there hasn't been there hasn't been a ton of options here just hasn't been. And we're trying to work our way out of it. But in the meantime, you've got these narratives. And I don't have any specific data to say, hey, um, these are the numbers I am seeing as far as the number of rental properties being taken out of the circulation. I just know that this is an ongoing trend. This is an ongoing conversation I am having with buyers who are looking to buy because they've been booted out of their home and their home has been sold, or how many homes we've represented that were rentals that sellers wanted to get rid of, how many uh, owner-occupied homes that landlords have owned, and they're like, I'm done, I'm out. Normally, I would sell my primary residence and make it a rental and sell it in three years because I've got my two years, you know, that whole thing, do your two out of five and get your 250 grand capital gains free or 500 grand if you're married uh, for free. Uh, and, and we're talking owner occupied uh, proceeds, you're taking tax free. So there, there's just a lot of conversation in real estate right now. I don't have specific data to back it up. But this is an ongoing thing. And I'm seeing rents going up. And I'm like, well, this makes a lot of sense. This is not shocking by any means. So why is this a problem? Isn't it good that more houses are available to purchase? We're talking about landlords wanting to sell them. Perhaps but let's focus on how these policies inflict the most harm on the very people that they would seek to protect low income families who cannot afford to buy a home. That has been my premise from the beginning of all this is that you put all these restrictions in place, 
you restrict the supply of rental housing in any way, shape or form in a city of like Seattle, who doesn't have enough rental housing of single family homes to begin with, what's that going to do? Any family, any low income family who can't buy a home but needs one, uh, they're priced out. I mean, just it's it's a no go. The common term for rental housing assistant funds is a section eight voucher. This program places strict guidelines on location and bedroom count. In my experience, many voucher holding families are of large enough size that a single family house with three plus bedrooms is their only viable option. And by only viable option, the author I think means this is what works for them. Instead of taking a, you know, family room right in the middle of the floor plan and making it into a bedroom, hey, this is what they need to kind of live normally. We see a lot of families not living normally. We see a lot of multi-generational families kind of making do. Um, cause, you know, housing has become so expensive in, in a lot of cultures. You've got a lot of families. You know, mom and dad live upstairs, kids live on the other bedrooms, grandma and grandpa live downstairs in the basement, something like that, or grandma and grandpa live out in the converted garage, they all kind of figure it out, they all make it work. Wife, husband and wife go to work, grandma and grandpa take care of the kids, mom and dad, you know, cover the rent, cover the mortgage, whatever. So where are these families to turn when such houses are no longer offered as rentals? And what happens to the price of other rental properties, the rental amount? monthly rent, what happens to those as you've got fewer and fewer of them? I mean, this is this is pretty basic supply and demand. The typical two bedroom apartment just doesn't work for a family who needs a three plus bedroom. The single family rental house plays a crucial role in the overall housing mix. Lawmakers who support policies such as an extended restriction on lease term enforcement and rent increases, limits on screening criteria, mandatory term renewals, and other tenant protections may do so with the very best intentions. However, the unintended consequences cannot be ignored. Such policies are difficult for mom and pop housing providers who typically offer single family houses as rentals to absorb. When it all becomes too much, they sell at alarming rates recently, and local renters, renters scramble to find a suitable replacement house with fewer options available as they compete with new renters moving to the Seattle area from all over the world. We've got people coming in here because of the tech industry, literally from all over, all over the United States, California, but literally all over the world. The sad reality is that once a house like this sells, it will never likely again be offered as a rental. And here's another thing that a lot of folks aren't talking about is as our market has appreciated, it takes more and more money as a down payment or as an equity contribution to buying a rental property to keep that mortgage payment in line with what you can get for rent so that you can at least break even with your rent. People always talk about cash flow. If you put 20% down on a single family home in the Seattle market, you're not going to cash flow, you're going to be upside down. It's okay to feed a property. You know, you're counting on that appreciation. All right. What have we recently experienced? And by being recently in the last decade, what have we experienced where that whole scenario of counting on appreciation didn't pan out? That's right. The Great Recession. The Great Recession. That taught us that if you don't have at least break even cash flow, you might be forced to give your house back. 
Because if you're upside down and upside down a bunch on a rental property, that is not going to work out unless you have extremely deep pockets. And then those pockets will no longer be extremely deep after you're through feeding said rental property for years on end. That's what we learned from the Great Recession, right? Back to the article here, the firm I represent. And, and so, so the bottom line there is, there's fewer and fewer people contributing massive amounts of down payment to buy these homes, because that's what it takes to get your mortgage payments in line with your rent. Does that make sense? I mean, I think it kind of does. You got a million dollar property that should be like 250 grand, but now it's a million. It doesn't rent for that much more than when it was 250, some more, but not that exponential amount. And so to make up that difference, you're gonna have to kick in a big down payment to have this bad boy cash flow. And then you're basically just getting money back that you already put in, right? The firm I represent may account for only a small sample size, but it is not insignificant that we saw a 48% increase in the number of our clients selling off their Seattle rental homes in 2020 as compared to 2019. It's interesting, isn't it? Makes you go, hmm, doesn't make me do that. I just kind of know. Yeah, that's happening. With every extension of the statewide eviction moratorium came a new wave of calls from clients to inform us that they would be selling. Now, I haven't had that experience. But uh, this person is also more on the property management side of things. So they're going to have a direct kind of pipeline for this information. To be very clear, my motivation in shining a light on this issue is not out of concern for my brokerage. We have consistently added to our client roster and property count year after year. And I can argue that increased rental housing regulation influences providers to seek out professional management services such as ours. There's so many regulations now that who wants to be responsible for trying to keep up if you can pay 10% of your rent to a property management, turn over those responsibilities to them and have them take on the headache of trying to keep up with all of this tomfoolery in the form of governmental regulation. My concern is for the health of our region single family rental house supply. The pool is being reduced, which is disappearing right out from under us. In a January 2021 poll of our clients, 35% of them intending to sell at the end of the current lease pointed to new legal regulation as the reason why. So over a third of them said, don't want to deal with this regulation. Let's sell this bad boy. My appeal to lawmakers understand that a blanket approach uh, blanket application approach does more harm than good. I join you in supporting targeted assistance to renters who truly need help. The Seattle Times reported in both February and March of this year that less than 10% of Seattle renters are behind. Preserve the already short supply of rental houses that we do have. There is nearly $500 million in COVID-19 federal money headed our way in West Washington state. Let's use it to help renters who have lost their businesses and their jobs to keep from falling behind in the first place and avoid the idea of an eviction entirely. Corey Brewer, the, uh, the author of this, is Vice President of Residential Operations at Windermere Property Management, Lori Gill and Associates, and serves on the Rental House Association of Washington Board of Directors. So this is a person in the industry like I am, but more so because they're property management. They do that all day long. Property management is a little bit different from the standpoint of 
you are you're a full time property manager, we do a little bit of property management, I have some brokers who dabble, um, mainly brokers who are who are the mom and pop operators that I'm talking about, maybe they own one, two or three, maybe I've got a few brokers who own more than that. But that's pretty normal because most most normal individual people don't want to own 20 single family rental homes, because they're going to literally spend all their time working on running around fixing stuff, meeting somebody to fix stuff, renting stuff out. It's a lot of work. Tremendous amount of work. All right. So there's that that's a perspective from a property manager of Yeah, you're going to have a lot more sales of these rental properties. And they're not going to be replaced because of the stuff I talked about. So here's the next article. And this is a different perspective. This is CNBC. He's 75 and facing eviction. Many older renters are too. That's the that's the story we're going to read here. Because um, I think you've, you've got to look at both sides. All right, we got the landlord. All right, let's be reasonable. Let's take a look at a story of a dude who's going to get evicted if things don't change shortly in his, his scenario. Andrew Cleland tries not to panic about his eviction hearing on July 16th or July 6th. Instead, the 75 year old focuses on what he can do to keep himself and his 82 year old wife Carol in their apartment. One of the reasons I want to read this article is these are the age of my parents, my parents are I think 75, I think my dad's 75, maybe 76. My mom is I think 80. So this is this is their demographic. Instead, their 75 year old focuses on what he can do to keep himself and his 82 year old wife, Carol in their apartment. He's applied for rental assistance. He's planned how he'll travel to the courthouse. A recent accident ruined his car and he can't afford to buy a new one. And so he has set aside the $20 each way it will cost for a cab. He and Carol also have called their children asking if they could live with them if they're forced out of one of the one bedroom apartment in Winston Salem, North Carolina, where they've lived for seven years. He and his wife have never been evicted. However, insufficient retirement savings, difficulty in getting rehired, and a lack of affordable housing have left many older Americans especially vulnerable to financial shocks like the one from the pandemic. It's rocked a lot of people's boats. It just has. I mean, people have had to struggle, people have had to, you know, do crazy stuff. But what I find interesting is that we have put more, we've had more government intervention during this time frame than we did during the Great Depression of the you know 1930s. Roughly 10% of renters over age 65 are behind in their rent, according to recent analysis by the Center on Budget and Policy Procedures. Sorry, budget and policy priorities. That means some 800,000 older people may be at risk of having to leave their homes when the national eviction moratorium expires on June 30th. All right, so it's not going to expire on June 30th, it's going to get kicked out, I would say until September 1st, maybe September 31st, somewhere in there. Congress has allocated $45 billion in rental assistance to help the leagues of struggling tenants and landlords and some of the organizations giving out the aid of prioritized seniors. I'm down with that. I'm okay with that. Seniors struggle enough, just getting old hard enough, right? I'm 52. And there's so many things that at 52 are 
pretty different than when I was 45. Just, you know, eyesight going, aches and pains, just don't recover as quick in the gym, you know, first world problems, right? But just a lot of stuff where you're like, Oh, I get up and I've got that creak. Oh, just uh, getting old. Still, the money has been very painfully slow to reach people. Um, and that is one of the big things why I think we just keep kicking out these moratoriums. Federal money hasn't hit the pipeline yet. Hopefully it hits soon because these landlords, they need they need something to look forward to and go, okay, I need to be able to do something with this property. It's it's conflict resolution is what's got to happen. So maybe that conflict resolution is that, you know, tenants get get federal money, landlord gets federal money, all that back rent gets paid. Does the tenant get a job? Do they have a job? Can they have, have they been paying maybe recently? All that stuff. Get rid of it. According to the National Low Income, get rid of the conflict. According to the National Low Income Housing Coalition, the 33 state and local rental assistance programs with readily accessible public spending data have on average distributed less than one fifth of their funding, even though the relief was signed into law six months ago. All right, so I keep reading like 5% to maybe 20%, just depending on who the entity is, they're, they they have put that money into the system. And so much of what I read is uh, only 5% of the federal money is, has been distributed. And it's because they don't have a system to pump that money to distribute that money. They don't have the checks and balances they kind of need. At least with the PPP money, you had people do you have a business license? Have you filed taxes? Has your business filed taxes? Do you have a nine an IRS form 941 that you could submit to us? And can can you forge all that? Absolutely. And there's people going to jail right now for it. But at least you have got the ability through the SBA and the PPP to get money out to businesses that were struggling. There's no real unified system to get money out to either landlords or tenants who are behind on their rent. Advocates are calling on the Biden administration to extend the eviction ban, which has been challenged in the courts and slammed by landlords until more of that aid reaches people because we don't want to tax an already uh, wildly uh, upside down homelessness situation, right? Homeless situation. I mean, you can't dump a bunch more people into that system. You keep, I keep reading about how that will really tax the system as it, as opposed to how it is now. I mean, the amount of money we're spending on homelessness and the results we're getting relative to the number of new homeless people, you know, hitting the streets. It's just crazy times. The New York Times reported this week that the White House is considering doing so for another month. I bet you they kick it out further than that. But it may all be too late for the Clelands. His rental assistance application is still pending in North Carolina, and his lease term is over on July 1st. That leaves him with less than 10 days to clear up his $27, $100 in arrears, or his landlord won't renew the couple's lease. Before COVID, it was a juggling act. Like many older Americans, Cleveland was just scraping by before COVID. It was a juggling act prior to the pandemic because the rent kept going up every year, he said. The rent is now around $780 a month, though it used to be closer to $650. That's a big hike for people living on a fixed income. 
Cleland's monthly Social Security check is $964, and Carol's is $751. So these guys are getting by on $1,715. Is that right? $1,617, $1,715? I think so. So for the Clelands, their income just basically, boom, done overnight. Yeah, hardcore. And they and they the Clelands had no retirement savings to turn to. Like more than one in five retired married couples, they now receive all or nearly all of their income from Social Security. That is something that I have kind of worked really hard at trying to not be a burden on my kids when I go to retire and become elderly. Because I basically lost everything in my divorce, what I didn't have taken away during the divorce, I basically gave up during the Great Recession, because I'm a real estate guy owned a bunch of homes, two real estate companies. How did that go? Not well. So I've been I've been kind of really working on retirement savings and being financially squared away after retirement. So I don't have to go, hey, Karen, can I move into your house? Hey, Brennan, I know you got 14 kids, but can I move? Can grandpa move in? Try to avoid that uh, as best I can, because I want to be I want to be independent when I retire and I want to be independent and I'll never retire. I'll do something. I don't know. Um, Podcasting is a pretty easy gig for retired people. Maybe think about it. If you're retired, I got a lot of retired people. That's why I say that. Um, Because just about anybody can sit in front of a microphone and talk. No, I make fun. Um, it's a little harder than you think. But I um, mean, it takes a while to kind of get this whole gig down. But if you've got something to say, I'd say go for it. Because there's not a lot of folks over the age of like 40 that are podcasting. It's just not a thing. You do what, Sean? Would you believe that I am a professional podcaster and YouTuber? No, no, not not, not really. I thought you were the real estate guy. Yeah. So what I do now, people think I'm joking, they literally think I'm joking. And then I'm like, No, that's that is what I do. Okay, that guy's a nut job. I'm sure they walk away thinking medical expenses tore up any nest egg he had built. Yeah, I mean, medical, do you get that? um, That major medical or uh, do you get that insurance for when you have to go into an old folks home? You know, we get to that point where you're like, oh, yeah, I could see chewing up what a couple million bucks doing that. That would really suck. I'm at that point where I'm having to, you know, think these things through of like, do I get to take out a policy for that? Do I take out a policy for all of life stuff? Medical expenses tore up any nest Aggie had built. His former wife, Sandra, had uterine and cervical cancer for six years. She recovered, but then a few years later, died of a brain aneurysm at 52. This is not a feel good story. I'm sorry. But this is reality. This is life. This is how things go down. And you wonder how people, you know, end up homeless. This is how they end up homeless, a bunch of circumstances. These people are on top of it as much as they can, because they have planned. But I think a lot of homeless people plan initially, too. And then they just kind of give up and maybe they've, you know, got some, maybe they've got some mental issues, or maybe they got some addiction issues, something like that. Maybe they've had some life changing event, like the Coronavirus shutting down their income. They're not quite as 
financially well off as they had hoped to be at this point in time in their lives. Or you got an ex wife who had uterine and cervical cancer, guy spent his money on wife number whatever, trying to make a go of it coronavirus comes along. It's a mess. One day in 1997, Carol walked into a car dealership in South Florida where Cleland was an assistant manager. He was closing up the shop. I would have inadvertently locked her in if I didn't see her, he said. <laughs> Oops, sorry. We locked in. The next day, she returned, and he sold her a champagne-colored Honda. Two years later, they were married. She was gorgeous, Cleland said. Carol also was hit with costly medical bills, including for several eye surgeries. And Cleland spent thousands on dental work for himself. A lot of things happened on the way to post-retirement age, he said. I might have planned better, but it's hard to plan for severe family illnesses. But it's one of those things where you're, you just got to be like, all right, should I buy the Ferrari? I mean, you, you just, you know, you, your, your mind goes to what cool stuff could I get? And I would never buy a Ferrari. Just, I mean, what, what am I going to do with that? You're going to drive around a Ferrari? Really? Honestly, I got this Ferrari in my garage. That just has never been. I'd rather have a monster truck that I couldn't park in the garage because it's too damn tall. That would be cool. Again, completely unnecessary. What I'm always thinking of is, yeah, that'd be cool to have that. But what's more practical is having some more money set aside. So if something does go really squirrely in my life, I can handle it. Called responsibility. I mean, it's kind of where you want to be. But it sucks because it's so boring. I a big bank account filled with money for whatever medical expense I might face. Or I've got that monster truck I could go drive. Oh, that'd be cool. I mean, you just have those conversations with yourself, right? And maybe it's maybe it's not even that. Maybe you're just looking at I need to put some money aside for this. Uh the roof on my house needs to be I'm gonna have to deal with that. Maybe that's what you're looking at. Life is expensive. It just, you know, it literally bleeds you dry and then you die, right? Sorry to be such a Debbie Downer, but this is the flip side to, oh, we should take off those moratorium, you know, all those moratoriums. After the pandemic hit and they lost their part-time jobs, the Clelands found that they hadn't been earning enough to qualify for unemployment benefits. Still, they received the several rounds of stimulus checks and they cut back on whatever expenses they could, purchasing more potatoes and rice at the supermarket and less pork and beef. I've lost 25 pounds since COVID has started, he said. All right, so there is the silver lining. Um, he's thinner because he's eating less. That's frustrating. That is, I mean, that's one of those things that you know, people cut down on food. He enrolled in payment plans with his cell phone and electric company. They're able to get some financial help from their children. But now that the federal aid has stopped and their children can't afford to send them any more money, they've fallen around three months behind on their rent. He's applied to more than 40 jobs, including at Walmart, Lowe's, Home Depot, but has yet to hear back. He can't help but worry that his age is a problem. If they have 500 applications for the same job and you're in the mid in your mid 70s, you're going to be at the bottom, Cleland said. Here's why I employ somebody who is well into their mid 70s as one of my main operations manager. And that is um, because they've got the years experience to handle damn near anything that comes their way. 
They don't have boyfriend or husband drama at that point in their lives. Because if you have boyfriend or husband drama in your 70s, you're probably not together all the way squared away anyway. And you're not worried about having kids, you've got great grand, you know, grandkids, or maybe grand great grandkids on the way something along those lines. But you're just not in that position where your life where you've got all this drama that me as your employer has to deal with because you bring it to work. So for anybody out there looking to hire somebody in their 70s, if the person is competent, and their mind is clear, I say go for it, because there are some real benefits to having somebody who is you know, 20, 20 plus years older than me. Um, because they, they've got more experience in some of this stuff. And it's like, all right, they're just going to handle it. And um, I don't have to think about it. And I don't have to micromanage somebody at that point. So I think there's a real benefit to having people in their mid 70s working, mainly because of experience, and they've been through it how many times before they can tell you about their parents literally going through the Great Depression, and how things were, you know, maybe they were, um, you know, the great people going through the Great Depression, that whole mindset kind of followed for an entire generation or two after that. So you had people talking about that, they've got those experiences to kind of draw on, so that when you have something hard in your business, or your company goes sideways, they're able to bring like this thing of well, you know, this isn't going to be that bad. Because Here's what's happened in the past. Here's what's going on in the future. You're, you're going to make it. It's going to be okay. It's good to have experience and it's good to have a point of view that isn't necessarily a young person's. Young people have great skill sets, computers, technology, social media. You got to hire a millennial, right? You got to. You almost have to. Um, but for other things where you just need experience and having people do the repetitions in life, don't be afraid to hire somebody that's, you know, older. If they're forced to leave their apartment in July, he's arranged to go live with his daughter in Maine. Carol's son in Florida said she could stay with him a while. Maine to Florida, that's a big run. Being separated from Carol, he said, will be the most painful consequence of the eviction. He doesn't know when he'll be able to see her again. Traveling will be expensive. And it will take time for them to save up enough money to get a new apartment together again. And I don't think we've spent many days apart in 20 years, Cleland said, we're each other's best friends. All right. That is an example of what we're trying to avoid with these eviction moratoriums. <sighs> Tough call, right? I mean, these are people that are hustling. They're hustlers. Obviously, they're still working in their 70s. And the wife is 82 babysitting. These are not people sitting around smoking the doobie playing Xbox, are they? No, they're, they're good, hardworking people with good intentions. And maybe life has, you know, dealt them some circumstances, or they got to pay some bills that are frustrating to have to pay, but that is life. So I wanted to read that one from the standpoint of this is what we're trying to avoid with some of these moratoriums. But I think a lot of us so often hear of the tenants who could pay that aren't paying. And that's what just drives us crazy. So know that yeah, there are some of those stories. But there are also some of these stories of people who are just having tough times. And we're all just trying to get to the other end of this ridiculous Coronavirus thing. All right, so that's it for me on this one. Um, but yeah, a different perspective on what's happening to people out there. 
And it's a, it's a tough time. So we need that federal money, hit the system, get people caught up. That needs to happen sooner than later. And I don't think there's any way you can hit the accelerator on that one. It's just going to take time. And that's why we keep kicking out these moratoriums. But it sure is annoying for a lot of these landlords. Um, and it's having some consequences like that first article I read that I think are going to skyrocket rents and make it even more difficult for people like the Clelands who are already having a tough time. It's going to increase rents. Rents are already increasing like we read on this article. All right, that's it for me. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for supporting the Seattle Real Estate Podcast. If you've gotten to this late point in this podcast, I will see you very soon. I'll see you in the next one. Until then, stay safe. Bye for now. Don't forget to subscribe to our channel and hit the notification bell so you'll know when our next video is out.